You're listening to the Christ Church Toronto podcast, a recording of the Sunday sermons from Christ Church Toronto. Christ Church Toronto is a new church in Toronto's East End that seeks to practice the ancient Christian faith today. We would love for you to join us in the future, but until then, please turn your attention to the scripture reading. The scripture reading this morning is from the Gospel of John, chapter 11, verses 17 through 27. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So, when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Caitlin. Well, at this time, let's bow our heads and let's pray and ask for God's favor and help as we reflect on this passage. Would you pray with me? O Father, word uh, who was spoken over and all things came into being, we ask now that by your very word you would speak to each and every one of us, that your spirit, Father, would work in such a way that we would hear your voice speaking to us, and in hearing your voice we would understand more clearly what it means to be your people, we would know more deeply your love for us, and we'd find ourselves a people more and more ready to commit all of our lives in loyalty and faithfulness towards you and your kingdom. Father, work through your word, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. I don't know if anyone knows the name Paul Robert Schneider. Does anyone, does the name ring a bell? He's probably not a Facebook friend. I mean, he might be, but not likely. Uh, he was a pastor of a small town in a rural village in Germany. And the only reason any of you might know his name is he was the first Protestant minister who was martyred by the Nazi regime. And his trouble started only a month after he had been ordained and installed as a senior pastor in this small village in Germany. Uh, A tragedy struck while some of the boys in his congregation were out drilling and a 17-year-old named Karl Moog tragically died. And Pastor Schneider conducted the funeral as any other Christian funeral, uh, as any funeral you would expect to see today. And as the funeral was coming to an end, right before the benediction, the local Nazi leader interrupted the funeral. And the congregation, the youth in the congregation were almost entirely members of Hitler's youth. And this leader of Hitler's youth, this sort of local Nazi leader, decided that it would be time at the tail end of the funeral to share the mythology that had been being spread, the propaganda that had been, spre- been spread, that Horace Vessel, the first uh, German to die for the Nazi cause, the writer of the Nazi anthem, that he had not actually died, but
but you may know how the mythology went, that he uh, was re resurrected and elevated as a stormtrooper in the sky. And before the funeral could wrap up, before the benediction, uh, this local Nazi leader felt the need to share with the youth that Karl Moog, he said, was not actually dead, but he had been resurrected and was in the sky with the stormtroopers in the sky. To quote him directly, he said, Comrade Karl Moog, looking at the casket, you have now been enlisted in Horace Vessel's battalion in the sky. And Pastor Snyder, a month on the job, fresh out of seminary, yelled, I protest. This is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, and there will be no rivals to the resurrected Jesus spoken of here. He then bravely lifted his hands and offered a Trinitarian benediction. He was later imprisoned. As you can guess, while he was in prisons, he wouldn't shut his mouth. Eventually, he was thrown into solitary confinement, and as is reported by other prisoners whose testimony survived, at roll call, they would call Pastor Snyder's name, and he would reply, Thus saith the Lord, I am the resurrection and the life. Accept Jesus as your Savior, and God will receive you as his children. He was beaten relentlessly, regularly, until they couldn't take him anymore and he was given a lethal injection. What would compel a young man, a father of six children, ages one to ten, to not shut his mouth and do this? Well, he gives us something of a hint. He wrote a lot of letters to his children, and over and over again in his letters he said this, Christ may not be seen in every deed, my children, but he is present in every hour because he is the risen Lord. He is with us now. Pastor Snyder is one of many, many who were willing to die because they believe Jesus at his word when he says that he was and is the resurrection and the life. And my goal this morning is that you might know Jesus as the resurrection and the life. And knowing him as the resurrection and the life, you might live with similar courage and you might find what it means to truly live, to truly have life. So here's what I want to look at this morning. Jesus claims, I'm the resurrection and the life. I want to first ask, what exactly is Jesus claiming when he says this? Then I want to ask, when does Jesus make this claim? And finally, I want to ask, what difference does this claim make in our life today, okay? So what is Jesus actually claiming? When does he make the claim? And what difference does this claim make in our life today? So first, what's Jesus claiming? He says it very clearly in verse 25. I am the resurrection and the life not understand much of this passage if we don't at least understand what Jesus is saying. This is a very, very intense scene, actually. It's worth your time this afternoon to read the entirety of the chapter. I thought about asking Caitlin to read the entire chapter. Uh, Lazarus, who is Jesus' very, very close friend, he has died. We don't know a lot about Lazarus. He's from the town of Bethany. <clears throat> but we're given a hint in this passage that he must have been incredibly influential. And we also know from other hints in the Bible he was likely very wealthy. And we know that a, a Jerusalem a sort of dignitary, a convoy has come, maybe I shouldn't use the word convoy anymore, a group of dignitaries has come from Jerusalem to Bethany to be at his funeral. And Martha, uh, ha, it was close with Jesus, and the very moment that her brother is sick, she actually sends out messengers first to go get Jesus before Lazarus actually dies. 
And if, we, if you read actually in chapter 11, we find that Jesus receives word that Martha would like him to come, that Lazarus is close to dying. And rather than coming, Jesus, for, for reasons, for his own sovereign mystery, decides not to come. He actually says he waits two days before he decides to travel to Bethany. And as he is greeted by Martha, who wanted his presence there, who obviously has gone through a lot, seeing her brother tragically die, is now sort of uh, setting up the funeral ceremonies, and there's all these people coming from Jerusalem, probably busy with much responsibility. Jesus greets her, not with condolences, but says bluntly, your brother will rise again. Martha gives a traditional Orthodox Jewish answer, of course, Jesus We know this to be the case. Of course, on the last day, when history has come to an end, when all the human beings God wants on this earth have been born, he will will conclude history, and all those who are dead at this very moment will be resurrected. They will line up, and they will stand before him, and they will be judged based on how their life was lived. Martha says, of course, Lazarus will be a part of that. Of course, he will rise again. And Jesus looks at this traumatized woman and says, I am the resurrection in the life. Whoever believes in me, though they die, shall live. And the one who lives will never die. What is Jesus claiming? And why is he making this claim now? First, what is he claiming? Well, in 1804, after the royalists failed to assassinate Napoleon, he said, they seek to destroy the revolution by attacking me. I will defend it, for I am the resolution, uh, revolution. Steve Wozniak, co-founder of Apple, and a Reddit asked me anything a couple of months ago, was asked about his relationship to the company today. And he said, well, obviously, Apple is the most important thing in my life, and no matter what happens, I am Apple. Jesus looks Martha in the eyes and says, your theology is correct, but you're missing something, something much deeper. I am the resurrection and the life. That event that is supposed to happen at the conclusion of history when the timeline has played itself all the way out, that mysterious event that all humanity is looking forward to in the future, I am that moment. I am that person. I am the resurrection and the life here and right now. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, just as foolish as it is to think of the, the revolution in France without thinking of Napoleon, so also you cannot think of this final resurrection and life unending apart from me. Jesus is saying that mysterious future that all of you await for, that Martha waited for, he is that future colliding into the middle of history, into the present. You see, the Bible says that all of humanity was given this gift of life from our Creator. And we have an obligation to be good stewards of this life that we were given. And we all know that on the last day, we will have an account rendered to us uh, based on the life that was sort of given out to us from the God who gives to us light. We will have to give an account on the last day. And all of humanity is looking forward to that judgment on the last day. And the hope is that the righteous will receive life unending. And the unrighteous will receive their punishment. And Jesus is saying this. He's saying that mystery of how the future is going to play out. Look at me. I am the resurrection and the life. What happens in my life is what you can expect in the future if you are united to and trust and believe and are loyal to me. I am the resurrection and the life. God is going to give life again. He's going to give life unending. And it's going to be in conjunction with 
me. I am the catalyst. I am the stimulus. I am what will bring this event into this world. I am the starting pistol that pops and life unending begins in and through me. What is Jesus claiming? He's saying, you want to know what the future looks like? It's here in the present. Jesus is saying, I am the one who will be rendered righteous at the final judgment. I am the life unending that awaits the righteous. And anyone who wants life unending must be connected with, tied up with, bound to me. I am the resurrection and the life. I want to spend just a little bit of time asking and reflecting on when Jesus makes this claim. Because the setting in this story is crucial. There's a detail at the very beginning of the passage you heard read that actually Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days. The timeline is important. If you have your Bible, you can see in John chapter 11, verse 6, or even on your phone, that Martha sends out this message to Jesus, and she says, listen, our, your good friend, my brother Lazarus, he's very close to dying. I need you to come. Jesus, for whatever reason, decides to wait two days. Then he decides to come. By the time he arrives, Lazarus is certainly, certainly dead. Martha has spent her last remaining strength trying to nurse her brother. I'm guessing almost no one in here, maybe a couple of you, but almost no one has seen someone die. But she's watched him gasp for his last breath. There's no ICU. She's traumatized. I'm sure her brother that she loved, that she had shared many intimate experiences with, she watched him as it ended, as his body grew cold. And Martha had faith, she had trust, she had hope that Jesus, if he was there, he could heal her brother. She appealed to his help, knowing that he would be willing to help. But Jesus doesn't come. This is when Jesus decides Martha is ready to hear that he is the resurrection in the life. Four days in the tomb. The body is certainly dead. He only wants to reveal this to Martha when her faith is at the most fragile of moment, when her faith is under incredible strain and pressure, when she doesn't know if she can trust him anymore. Why? Because Jesus needs Martha to see, and he needs you and I to see, that there's certain assumptions that we carry into our relationship with him, and these assumptions are toxic, and they will turn us away from finding life unending. They will will turn us towards never-ending death. She tells us what her assumption is. Look at verse 21. What does she say to Jesus on verse 21? She said, if you had been here. What's she saying to Jesus? She's saying this. Jesus, I know you so well. I know that you have the power to help. And here's what else I know. I know exactly how best you would help me. If you had been here, you would have healed my brother. And what does Jesus say to her? He loves her enough, listen closely, because this is the dangerous edge of theology. What we see in this passage is that Jesus loves Martha enough that he's willing to wound her. He's willing to confuse her. He doesn't come to her and make apologies saying, I'm sorry, I was tied up. You know, you know how those disciples can be when I say we got a pack, it takes forever. No, he makes no apologies. He's got her right where he wants her. As tears are running down her eyes, as her body's recovering from all the trauma that she's just been exposed to, he realizes now she'll see. Now she'll know what it means that I am the resurrection. I am the life. My timing is perfect. He never apologizes because he's never late. And like a mother, delicately, 
putting hydrogen peroxide on an open wound as her child screams in agony and feels as though they cannot make it. Jesus is willing as well to wound, to put you through pain so that you might be healed, that you might experience life unending. Listen, Jesus wants us to know that he is the hope for life unending. But unfortunately, the only way he can reveal it to most of us is to call our attention through pain, through difficulties. He's going to wait until your faith is under extreme strain and pressure so that all of your assumptions that you have about him and about how he ought to work and the way in which you have created and crafted some kind of deal with him, you've kind of entered into some sort of special relationship with him where you will follow him so long as he acts a particular way. He wants you to see that he's not going to play by those rules because he wants to give you not just a little bit of hope, but he wants to give you life unending. And he's going to use pain to cry out for your attention. He's willing to do it. He's willing to confuse. There's a fundamental assumption that each and every one of us, listen, this is one thing that you spend all your time as a pastor hearing people talk about. There's a fundamental assumption that we all bring into our relationship with God, and it's this, that the greatest evil in my life right now is pain and suffering, okay? That's assumption number one. That's the worst thing I could face is pain and suffering. And assumption number two is that the greatest good I could ever experience, the greatest good I could ever take in is God dealing with that pain, alleviating my suffering. These are the assumptions we have in our relationship with God, and God wants you to see that that's false. There is a much greater problem hanging over your head. You are at risk of spending eternity separated from the only one who can give you life and life unending. Your assumptions are wrong. And he wants to grab your attention. He needs to grab your attention. He wants you to experience unending joy. He wants you to experience unending life and trust with him. And so that's why he waits until the darkest of moments to look you in the eyes and force you to hear him say, I am the resurrection. I am the life. Do you believe it? This is when he reveals himself this way. But let's conclude our time by saying, so what? What difference does it make? Jesus claims to be the resurrection and the life. Listen closely. Kids are in children's ministry now, so I feel like I can be a little bit more bold. There's a very good chance some of you are going to hear these words read, maybe by my voice, over you, as you lay right in front of me in a casket, your body cold. A crowd come together mourning your loss. And they're going to hear these, Jesus say, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. You'll be in the casket. Friends and family will hear this. Why will this verse be such a comfort to some? Is it because death is fake? Is it because death is just the sort of natural end to the life cycle? No. No. In fact, if we were to read the, the, this whole passage, it's Jesus makes this I am statement in the midst of a miracle. He's going to re- resuscitate Lazarus' body. Lazarus will die again. But he's going to lift him up out of the grave, give to him life again. Jesus is also going to, it's going to say that he weeps. It's the shortest verse in the Bible. It's the easiest one to get your sticker in Sunday school. John eleven thirty five. Jesus wept. But it's not just any sort of weeping. It's the wailing. It's the word that the horses use in their sort of frustrating grunts. He hates death. It's not as though these verses are going to be comforting to you so that as you sit in the casket, people are going to say, I see. Death isn't really real. This is no big deal. 
No, death is very, very, very real. It's horrendous. It's evil. It's painful. There will be tears. And yet, this passage is telling us, as horrible as death is, as horrible as the thought is of seeing you in this casket in front of me, that, that death is only a shadow of the death to come. Like the shadow of an advancing army coming past your window as you look outside. This shadow is terrifying, but it's nothing like the real thing. And Jesus is saying to you and me and to anyone with ears to hear, the first death is only a shadow of the death that is to come. Eternal punishment, unending, for those who've turned away from the life source, who've misused the life that has been given to them. The first death is horrendous, it's horrible, but it's only a shadow of the death that is to come after the final judgment and internally being unplugged and disconnected from the life source. This passage is saying that death is terrifying, but it's terrifying only in the same way a shadow is terrifying. The real and eternal thing is so much more horrendous and so much worse. As I stated, we were born given the gift of life, given to us in trust. We have an obligation to use life a particular way. We will stand in the last day in judgment. And the first death will be nothing compared to the second. And this is what Jesus has come to do. He lived the perfect life, and in the middle of history, he sacrificed his life, and God decided the judgment that all of humanity waited at the end, was waiting for at the end of history, God said, I will render that judgment now in the middle of history to one man, Jesus. And you know what his judgment was? Righteous, never to die again, life unending. And this is what Jesus is saying, that when you are tied up with me, when you believe in me, when you are united to me by faith, that life unending begins coming to you now, and though you face death, you don't face the final death. It's just the shadow that you face. You don't face the real thing. I am the resurrection. I am the life. Though you die, you will live again. This is what Jesus is saying. Now, what difference does this make? Let me just, you know, I thought the kids are gone, so maybe I'll go on a tangent about you know, the difference this makes about so many things in our life. But let me just say one thing, that I think what this means is that we as Christians, we're coming off a bad season as Christians. For whatever reason, the media loved to put a microphone in front of any pastor who denied the reality of COVID and was willing to risk the lives of vulnerable. We've got to live with that bad press for another couple of years. The impression has been given that we don't actually take serious life. But somehow we have to find a way as Christians to say that we are people more than any, that hate death. We're not going to sentimentalize it. We're not going to pretend like it's not painful. But we also, as Christians, have to say, we are people who hate death, but we do not fear them, fear death. Our culture is terrified of death. I mean, think about it. We put all the, the people who are old and aging and, and corruption is taking place in their body, we put them away in homes so we can shut the door and not see them. During COVID, we locked them up so we wouldn't even have a chance to be bothered by them. My goodness, when was the last time you saw a plot of land being purchased so that we could put new headstones, new, new places for people to be buried, to rest? When was the last time you heard of a commercial real estate dealing, deal going to a church because they needed to find more room to bury bodies? Not in Toronto. How much longer do you think the cemetery off Woodbine will stay there? St. John's. People can't handle death. We don't want to see it. We don't want to walk past tombstones. We want that stuff out of sight and out of mind. In fact, we don't even want to bury people. We want to burn them and put their ashes, scatter them somewhere so that it's out of sight, out of mind. 
We, 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 so, we put pressure on elderly people that they ought to just end their life. They ought to kill themselves rather than be the, the burden that they are of forcing people to watch them die. Listen, Christians, hear me clearly. Christians are people who hate death, but we're not scared of it. We're not scared of it. We know it's the shadow. And we know that life unending is coming in Christ. This pandemic has traumatized so many of you and so many of our neighbors because for the first time in your life, you were confronted by the fact that people you live next to die. <laughs> I mean, I, I remember when I found out that four people died in my neighborhood, and I thought, oh my goodness, four people died of COVID. I don't know how many people die on a normal we- day anyway. All of a sudden, death was ever before us, and it traumatized us. We are a people who hate death, work against the effects of death, but we are not scared of it. We know that Jesus is the resurrection. He is the life. Though we will face the first death, we will face the shadow, we won't face the second. In fact, we will receive life unending, united to Christ. Listen, Christians hate death in the same way Jesus hates death, but we know that the second death has been defeated in Christ, and so therefore we do not fear it. By faith, Jesus has transformed our first death into nothing more than a a, a nap as we await our life unending. And so what this means is that Christians are a people who will rush to places that no one else will. This is why Christians historically have always ran towards the sick during plagues. This is how the church has grown historically. Because though they die, they know they will live forever one day. This is why Christians historically have always been the ones willing to move in towards not just the places where death is present, but also where corruption is so obvious and so apparent. Right now, if you go to the worst slums around the world, I almost guarantee you will bump into some Christian willing to use his or her life to serve some of these people born in destitute and horrendous poverty. There are hospitals in the poorest places of the world right now. They're Christians, past all their medical education, laid aside a life of luxury and decided to serve some of the least and the worst and the broken. This is why, because Christians hate death and yet we are not scared of it. And because of that, we have an instinct, a a counterintuitive instinct, to where we see decay and where we see uh, the likelihood of death being apparent, rather than running the opposite way, almost like a soldier in the Lord's army we're willing to move towards, to fight against death, even if it means putting our own life at risk. This happens in a very real scale during pandemics when there's sick people around. It also happens in a very small scale where there's death in a relationship brother and sister hate each other. The more we're united to the source of life, the more we're going to find ourselves moving towards that dead relationship, hoping that life might come into it. Broken workplace relationships, anger against neighbors, the more deadly it looks, the more toxic it looks, the more decaying it looks. Christians hate death, but we're not scared of it. We'll move towards death. Why? Because we're united to the source of life unending. This has been all the more apparent to me as I read a great little memoir of a woman named Maria Garrett. I doubt anyone in here has read it. At the age of 22, her and her husband somewhat naively moved into the worst neighborhood in Baltimore, Maryland. Rough, rough neighborhood. And for 30 years, they lived in this neighborhood as faithful neighbors, trying their best to make an impact. And she writes a book called 1,000 Resurrections. That's her reflection on seeing the life of Jesus that she's united to impact the neighborhood in which she lives. She writes this of her time in Baltimore. I didn't know we would scrape by just above the poverty line for years, that I would live with people who heard voices or had spent most of their lives in juvenile hall or prison. I didn't know that I would share a house with women who sold their bodies, snorted cocaine, 
whose boyfriends choked and punched them. I didn't know when we began this ministry that our children would, be lead, would experience lead poisoning, that our children's friends, the friends who ate at our table like a godson, would not go to college but instead go to prison, that a little boy with no daddy who would come to our house to help bake cookies in my kitchen and who would hunt snakes with my son one day would lie on the streets in a pool of blood. I didn't know. I didn't know that when I was scraped raw, Jesus would heal me. I didn't know that Jesus would, uh, would use my life to bring life to the dying. I didn't know that Jesus would use me when it seemed as though death had the upper hand in my neighborhood. I didn't know that I would witness a thousand resurrections. That church members who struggled to pay rent would adopt nieces and nephews to save them from drug-addicted parents. I didn't know. I didn't know that a woman who saw a teenage mother roll her baby's stroller into an empty house and abandon it would raise that baby as her own. I didn't know. I didn't know that I would play a part in seeing a child have hope in life. I didn't know. I didn't know that a man who snorted cocaine would get clean and love Jesus. That a woman sexually abused by her father would be healed and would rescue other children and give them hope and give them life. She didn't know. She goes on and on and on to say this. She hates the effects of death. But she's not scared of it. Why? Because she's united to the resurrection of the life. And in the same way life unending is pulsing through the veins of Jesus Christ right now, she knows by faith the Spirit unites her to Christ, and little glimmers of that life are going to pulsate out through her body into the watching world. Friends, the stench of death, death reeks in our neighborhood right now. It reeks in our affluent neighborhood. We want nothing to do with it. We're going to Botox ourselves till we look like a bunch of balloons to deny the fact that we're all going to die. Maybe not of COVID, thank God, but of something very, very soon. We're all going to end up in the casket. And what does Jesus want you to know? He wants you to know this. Though you die, if you just trust him, if you just believe him, if you just exercise loyalty to him and turn from your sins, which bring nothing but stench, the stench of death into your life, life unending is yours. And this is what he says to our church. Friends, we only get to die once but we're going to get to live twice. Don't waste it. We've got neighbors in need. Let's pray. Father, you, are, you have sent your Son, and he is for us the resurrection and the life. There is no more mystery. Father, we're coming out of a very, very confusing time in the history of your church where some of our sisters and brothers, unfortunately, have taken these kinds of teachings and decided that they will be a nuisance to public health and put other people's lives at risk. At the exact same time, Father, some of us have been so paralyzed by fear of death, we haven't lived. Father, unite us to Jesus, our Savior, our Lord, our other elder brother, and even today, I know that there are dead hearts in this room. Would you resuscitate them and give to them life? I know, Father, there are cynical minds. Would you give them life that they might walk out of here people with hope? I know the stench of death and decay is on many as attitudes have become toxic, as frustration has turned into sinful behaviors, as addictions have rotted inside of us. 
Jesus, you're the resurrection and the life. Give us more of your life even today. Renew us. Regenerate us. Give to us this life that never ends. This we ask in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Christ Church Toronto podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at ChristChurchToronto.ca or email us at info at ChristChurchToronto.ca.